the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. The book of Luke is written so that we might know we have a reliable faith. God sent Jesus, the Messiah of the world, down to save us. Jesus called out many of the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, telling the people not to follow their hypocrisy. He taught the people many things through parables and teachings. The people began to doubt if Jesus was the Messiah. They wanted a strong king that would overthrow Roman rule. But this was not Jesus' goal. He healed a man by casting a demon out of him. The people marveled, and the religious elites hated him all the more. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 11, verse 43. And so the Lord tells him, he goes, if you don't turn, if you don't repent from this, you think you're righteous, but you're not. You're opposing me when I'm the one who's come to rescue you. I'm doing this because I love you and I don't want you to be judged. But if you don't repent, I'm warning you, this is what's going to happen. And so he pronounces here now three woes upon them. Look at verse 43, the second woe. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. So they didn't love God, but they did love something. They loved this. They loved the uppermost seats in the synagogues. Like we would call that kind of the stage here. They didn't have a stage in in a synagogue. In fact, most synagogues were pretty small, the local synagogues in the villages. When we were in Magdala and they showed us the synagogue there, it was probably no bigger than the stage. But even in there, you had a front area where the speaker would be, and behind the speaker, there would be seats. So even if there wasn't an actual stage, you had seats behind the speaker. Those were the seats of honor. Those were the chiefest seats. And so these guys, they loved that. They loved people looking up at them as the service was going on. They loved to be seen. They loved to be seen in the markets and people going, oh, look, it's Pharisee Bob. Hey, Bob, nobody loves Jesus like Bob does. Right, Bob? They loved something instead of God. They loved that others looked up to them. They loved that others deferred to them. They loved that others knew who they were. So they acted spiritual because they loved that recognition from others. So not only you know, is, is God going to deal with them because they, they ignored, the major, ignored the majors and majored in the minors, but they sought recognition from men instead of pleasing God. When you live a life like that, that means no matter how much you might wash yourself on the outside, you're unclean. Now, what happens if you're unclean and you're walking around town? What happens when other people come into contact with you? You're unclean. So these guys who are, everybody's looking up to them and fawning over them and whatever, they're walking around basically not able to come into God's presence because their hearts are unclean, and now they're infecting everyone else around them, which is the third reason Jesus says judgment's coming. He says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not, unmarked graves, and the men that walk over them, they aren't even aware of them. What's the problem with an unmarked grave? 
Well, in Unmarked Grave in Numbers 19.16, not an Unmarked Grave, but a grave in 1916, Numbers 19.16 says, whosoever touches a grave is defiled and it becomes unclean. So the bad thing about it, like if you see a grave, you can go, oh, oh, need to go around the grave. But an unmarked grave, you'll never know. So you could end up being ritually defiled, not able to come before the presence of God, not know it, and then come before the presence of God, think everything's fine, and God's going, you're lucky I don't make you a crispy critter. Because you don't belong here. You haven't taken care of this yet. So all the time you think everything's good with me and God, but the truth is, it's not. That's what these guys are doing to other people. Because people are admiring them and following their example and looking up to them, and they're defiling them with their, their lack of relationship with God, their hypocrisy, and everyone else is getting infected with it. Before we move on, we need to realize Jesus said something a little bit different this time, didn't he? He says, woe unto you, and then he adds a group, doesn't he? Scribes and Pharisees. So who are the scribes? Well, remember I said earlier the Pharisees, they weren't really the scholars? Well, that's who the scribes are. These are the rabbis. They are the rabbinical scholars. They're the ones responsible for teaching the law to the people. The Pharisees said, we're the ones who do the law, but these are the guys who taught the law. They were held in high esteem for that role, the rabbis were. And Jesus, he adds these guys to this last critique here because while they did different things than in Jewish society than the Pharisees did, those two were like peas in a pod in how they approached life. Everything was external, nothing was internal. And so Jesus calls them both hypocrites, walking contradictions. And that is a good description for what we've learned about them in this passage. But as Jesus says, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is what their hypocrisy causes because they're leaders. Because people look up to them, people follow their example, and they're defiled. They're not brought closer to God. If you're a Pharisee right now, that hurts, doesn't it? (laughs) Talk about turning a critique against the critic. How come he doesn't do the ritual washings? How come he doesn't obey the rabbinical codes? You want to talk about me not obeying the rabbinical codes? You guys, you don't even love God. And you're, you're keeping other people from God too. I mean, that had to hurt. Had to sting, but it was true. It was true. And Jesus loved them enough to tell him. He loved them enough to tell him. Even though it surely made the dinner awkward, I imagine. We can very easily look at these guys and go, man, these guys are losers. But if all we do is critique them, then we miss the point, I think. Because... The thing is, we have to ask ourselves some important questions. Is my life about appearing spiritual before others? Or is it about loving God and loving others? Does my life encourage others to grow? Or am I keeping them from really knowing the Lord because my relationship, my example I give to them is purely external? Now, before verse 44, if you were a a scribe, you might be thinking, ooh, Rabbi Jesus, he is taking out a pound of flesh from the Pharisees. They deserve it. But in verse 44, he gets them too. So now one of them speaks up and goes, okay, that's enough, Jesus. You can get on them, but not on us. And then answered one of the lawyers. Lawyer is just another name for those scribes. Lawyers refers to what they did. It means to interpret the law. So they were the interpreters of Moses' law. They, remember, they were not, I'll get to this in a minute, they weren't really students of the law, but they were interpreters of Moses' law. So these rabbinical scholars, one of them stood up, and, or one of them said to Jesus at the dinner, he said, Master, thus saying, uh, thou reproachest us also. You insult us, even us, is what the Greek says. You, you insult us, even us? 
We're above such critique from you. Bad enough you insult the Pharisees, but attacking us, that's unacceptable. We're the learned. There's no one as spiritual as we are. They can call themselves Pharisees, but nobody knows like God like we do. Can I give you some advice? If you don't want the Lord to turn up the heat, take your correction with humility. These guys could have probably escaped <laughs> and, and took the rebuke and said, okay, maybe we need to work on our, our lives. You know, he's calling us hypocrites. But they don't do that at all. They, well, what, Lord? And so the Lord's like, oh, really? Let me talk to you guys now. God is so gentle in how he corrects us initially. Jesus has been dealing with these guys for a while. He has been calling them out, but generally, not specifically, and certainly not individually like this. But it's only when we refuse to respond to the Lord and his private correction that the Lord exposes us. So like the Pharisees, the Lord gives three reasons why they're going to be, these scribes are going to be judged too. He said unto them, woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and you yourselves... You don't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The word they're laid, it's, it's a continual word. It means you're just always laying trips on people. You're always doing this to people. You're always putting burdens on them that are difficult to carry or hard to endure. These guys are interesting. You know, we look at these guys. I remember when I first um, studied the Bible, I thought, okay, so these are like the Bible students. These are the, like the Bible scholars. They are not the Bible scholars. You know, when I thought of the scribes and the rabbis and the scripture, I thought of men laboring over scripture so that they could explain it to the people. That these guys, you know, that's what they did. No way. These guys were scripturally illiterate. They didn't spend all day laboring over scripture. They spent all day discussing the oral traditions, opinions of other rabbis about the law. That's what they discussed. So Jesus isn't dealing with scripturally literate scholars. He's dealing with religious scholars. And there is a difference. See, these men had taken simple laws like, hey, don't work on the Sabbath. God wants you to rest on the Sabbath. And they had made them a, a burden by defining work as carrying your lunch beyond a certain distance. You know? And then they would find workarounds for it. And so they'd say, well, if you put your lunch out there at that distance the next day, then guess what? You can walk twice as far. And do you think that's the heart of God when he gave the law of the Sabbath? Not, not even close. The laws were so complex, they were so numerous that no one could know them all, let alone keep them all. And they had added to God's commands in such a way that they hardly resembled the commands of Scripture anymore. The people didn't know Scripture because all they knew was rabbinical tradition. All they knew was that rabbinical code. And not only that, but these guys were responsible for keeping those laws current with the times. So, the laws of 200 years ago, they might not be as palatable 200 years later. And so, for example, the idea of capital punishment being the crime for a rebellious, not a child, but grown child, you know, who's wasting your money and, you know, and destroying your property, that was what God said, but that wasn't, that wasn't very acceptable anymore. In fact, at this point in time, it was very rarely that the Jews would enact capital punishment because it was distasteful to them. So they made all these laws. They made one law for, the law, uh, for certain laws of capital crimes. They would make the requirements, like for murder. They, they basically made it where you couldn't be killed for murder. You couldn't be put to death or executed for murder. They would say this. They would say, well, you know, you have to, have, you have to know that he, that he planned to do it. That it wasn't, because remember, manslaughter and murder are different, and they were in the Old Testament too. So they would say, well, you had to, you had to have at least have two witnesses who heard him say that he was going to kill him, that he had planned to kill him. 
And then they would say it had to happen within a certain amount of time after he said it. Otherwise, it doesn't count that you heard it. So they would basically take the law of God and they would nullify it by their own codes. But so these guys, to make the law current with the times, the laws, they would, they would, they would change them. So as a result, God's word looked nothing like scripture. God's word looked nothing like scripture by the time they were done with them. Bad enough to deceive people by making up laws to fit the times. But then Jesus says, you don't need them to offer help as they're trying to keep them. You know, they offered no help to people they, that failed in their struggle to obey all these crazy laws. The word there for touch, it's a medical term. And Luke, being a doctor, it's really cool that he uses it. It's a medical term that's when the doctor gently probes a sore part of the body to try to discover the problem. You know, when, when my, my kids come to me and they say, Dad, Dad, my, my foot hurts, you know, I don't take their angle, twist it and go like, ah! I'll come by and I'll say, where is it? Here, here, here. Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. Okay, let me just... Right there, right there. Okay, okay. It looks like you sprained your ankle. Okay, so we're gonna get some ice. We're gonna, you know what I'm saying? When, when I go to my doctor, and if I tell him, I say, "Listen, I'm having stomach pain or something," you know, he doesn't go like, "Oh, really? Cool. Let's see. It hurt there. Please, it hurt there." He just starts to probe, and if he finds, is that tender? Is that you know whatever? And then when he finds, okay, that's that area, and then he starts to ask questions, try to figure out what the problem might be. Okay, let's get you an X-ray. Right? No, you're fine. It's gas. No, you know, blah, 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 all the various things he might say to you, but told you, man, I'm one-eighth Jewish. I express. If I'm thinking it, it usually comes out. They would not care if you were struggling. They'd just come and tell you and say, well, that's the law. You got to keep it. Lay all these burdens on people. Secondly, now Jesus deals with their murderous hearts. Second, woe, he says, woe unto you. For you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Truly, you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, that you're okay with what they did, for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs. Now, what's, why would be building their tomb mean they were okay with what they did? Well, see, these, these guys, these rabbis, they would build these monuments over their, their famous prophets. You can see still some of them today when you go to Israel. They would build them up. And, oh, we revere these guys. Well, why did they do that? Because they considered themselves to be those who inherited the role of the prophets. We're their inheritors. We're the ones who have their role now. All the while, ignoring what those prophets actually said. So how are they any different than those who killed the prophets if they've erased their message? And then Jesus does something very interesting. He says, you'll doubly prove that you're murderers by killing those that I send out. Jesus says, therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will slay and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto it shall be required of this generation. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus says, the scriptures are right that you're going to kill those that God sends out. But it's interesting. If you look for there, Jesus says, therefore also said the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, it's a, it's a phrase that means a book containing God's word. So scripture, okay, a book. This is what a book containing God's word says. And here's what it says. I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will slay and persecute. Now, do you know of a verse in the Old Testament that says that? If you can't think of one, the reason why is because it doesn't exist. So what verse is Jesus referring to? Well, 
This is a fascinating prophecy, one of the most fascinating I find in all of Scripture. Jesus is going to say this in the future. He hasn't said it yet, but he's going to say it. So Jesus is saying that one of his sayings, and you can find it in John 15 and John 16, that one of his sayings will end up in a book that becomes Scripture. So this is a prophecy of the existence of New Testament Scripture long before it was written. Isn't that cool? I I got chills when I saw that. I was like, that's so cool. Jesus shouldn't surprise us. He's God. He knows there's going to be a New Testament. But why does Jesus point forward to those future words? Because he says, these guys will experience the judgment of God for all those that Israel persecuted and slew that God sent throughout their history. He says, I'm going to require it. I'm going to charge them with that crime of all history. They're going to deal with the penalty for that. Now, why such a heavy penalty upon these guys for what their forefathers did, even though they earn it because they continue it? Well, they may have slain the prophets, but this generation will call for the death of God's king. And they will cry out what? We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. That's the ultimate rejection of God, his own son, his chosen king. And it's the culmination of their murderous history. And 40 years from the day Jesus utters these words, God will use Caesar to bring judgment upon Israel just as Jesus warns here. Now there's one more woe, one more reason for judgment on these guys. He says, woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves and them that were going in, you've hindered, you've prevented, you've stopped them from going in. Now the word here for a key, it's a metaphor uh, in, in Greek. It means uh, the way that you acquire something. It's, you know, we say the key to life is this. So the, the key here, you know, what's the key of going into? What's, what's we're referring to? In this case, to get knowledge, to get truth, to get reality. The key of knowledge, the key of truth, the key of reality, they, they destroyed it. And then they kept people who were trying to find the doorway from going in. Now, what's the doorway and what's the key? Well, Proverbs 1.7 tells us what the doorway is. What's the beginning of knowledge? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, Proverbs 8.14 tells us, or 13 tells us, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So the doorway is wisdom. The doorway is, is, is truth, okay? It's, it's, it's the fear of the Lord, okay? That's how we go. That's the doorway to get to truth. I'm sorry, to get to truth, the doorway is, is the fear of the Lord. The key is fearing, hating evil to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. Now, how do we find out what God loves and what he hates? Right here, right? So this is the key. This is the key. The doorway is the fear of the Lord, and that's how we find truth. So they had taken the key, this, chucked it, and then when other people were trying to understand this, they said, no, 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 no. No, no, you need to go look at what the rabbis say. You can't, you can't figure that out. You gotta go, you gotta go look at what the rabbis said. That, that is something that God is angry at. And he says he's going to judge him for it. It's bad enough that they toss the scripture to the wayside in favor of the opinions and decisions of men. But when someone genuinely wanted to know what God's word said, the scholar said, no, 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 that's not where it's at. You need to go look at what the rabbis say. And so they kept people from actually learning God's word. That's why Jesus was so different. He spoke with authority. He spoke God's word to them. Now, I don't ever want to do that as a pastor. I want to give God's people his word, not someone else's ideas or even my own ideas about his word. And that's why Ephesians 4.11 calls pastors, not just pastors, but pastor teachers. 
We're not pastor motivators. We're not pastor entertainers or pastor philosophers. Our job is to shepherd God's people by reading God's word, explaining God's word, and then exhorting the people to do God's word. And anything else is just getting in the way. So if you're a leader this morning, you know, is your motive to try to control others like these guys, to retain power? Or is your heart to serve others? Is it to help them see God more clearly or to show them how much you know? Jesus' words, again, they're designed. They're heavy, but they're designed to get these guys to see the obvious. They're plotting his murder. They're trying to trick him into incriminating himself. Those are horrible things. No good person would do those things. So the idea here is he's trying to get their attention. Because even if Jesus was off base, doing that would be so wrong. But sadly, they don't see the obvious. They harden their hearts and they keep rolling forward with their plan. Verse 53. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to, King James says, urge him vehemently. It means they bitterly opposed him. They, and, they, and they sought to provoke him to speak of many things. It means to put words in someone's mouth until they end up saying what you want them to say. They're trying to put words in his mouth to catch him in something that they can bring charges against him. They're laying wait for him, trying to ambush him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth so they might accuse him and put him to death. You know, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, and let's not do that. Let's not be that. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, we read it in our scripture reading, but it says, but let a man examine himself when we do this, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The word examine there, it means to scrutinize something in order to see whether it's genuine or not. I collected baseball cards when I was a kid. And, and you know, nowadays you, you have to go send it in to get it verified. They actually, you can't sell baseball cards today unless you get, not for any money, if you want it, unless you get it verified by someone who can verify. That's what this word examine means. You scrutinize something to see whether it's genuine or not. And that's something we need to do on a regular basis because we have blind spots. And sometimes the Lord, he wants to reveal those to us so that we don't remain blind in those areas. When we take the Lord's Supper and we celebrate it, it is a time to remember and thank the Lord for his love. You know, his broken body, the idea of him stepping out of heaven, a place of perfection to enter into our world, which turned his stomach. You know, times Jesus would cry out and go, oh, wicked generation. There were things here surely all around him that nauseated him coming from where he came from, place of perfection. But he did it because he loved us. So we do celebrate that. We do remember that. We remember the cross. We remember all the pain and the suffering he went through, the brunt of God's wrath upon him for our sin and the love that caused him to do that, the joy of saving us that caused him to do that. We do remember and celebrate that. But it's also a time to ask him to search our hearts, to examine our own hearts. That's what it says here in 1 Corinthians. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For it explains, if you would judge yourself, you won't be judged. You know, God doesn't want to deal with us this way. He doesn't want to call us out in public. He doesn't want to have to hit us with a two by four. So if we'll take this time, not just to be thankful and to celebrate what Jesus did for us, but to examine ourselves. That way the Lord can work in us. Because it says here, when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord. God spanks his kids so that we won't be condemned with the world. You know, that we won't go that route like these guys continued to go. So as we, you know, go through this time of reflection and remembering what Jesus did, let's make it a time for examination too. 
In Psalm 139, David, who, if we were to put up David's resume of behavior against the scribes and the Pharisees, I can tell you who would get the job. It would be the scribes and the Pharisees. But David was the man after God's own heart. And this is what he said. In Psalm 139, 23, and 24, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting, your way. Get me back on track. So as the ushers get together and begin to pass the elements out, and the worship team comes on up, let's make this a time of examination. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, and we are going to remember that and celebrate that. But Lord, we don't want to eat or drink unworthily in the sense of we are worthy in you. We've already been made worthy in Christ. And now we want to, we want to partake as those who are in Christ, those who examine themselves, those who make their calling election sure, those who you know, confess our sin that you might be faithful and just and forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that's what we want to be. We want to do it as those who are saved because that's what saved people do. And so, Lord, now we do that. We give you this time to speak to our hearts, to show us if there's an area of not genuineness there, an area of disobedience, so that we might get back on track. Your way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.